Uh, I started, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, to talk about something which really is a fundamental basis uh, or concept of the uh, <clears throat> the Tikkun progression, you know, the, the progression of rectification. Uh, actually, before I start, uh, I want to dedicate the shear to Renu uh, Rini Malko, Regina Bas, Yosef Ruvain, uh, and the Neshama should have an Aliyah, uh, certainly in Gan Eden. Now, in any case, uh, I started this year, uh, and the story of, as I uh, you know, did then, the story of Yaakov and Esau is not merely a story of uh, two individuals, but really it's the story of part of the Tikkun process, uh, as we saw, and what the, the ideas, what are the components of this Tikkun process, which in many ways plays out in Yaakov and Esau. And that's why the story is very important uh, to understand, because of all the, the concepts and the ideas that are really part of the story. Besides that, the story is really, in many ways, a difficult story to understand, uh, and, and, and there are a lot of uh, pro- problems. But what uh, the story also is a very good illustration that there are really two stories going on. There's a story which we read as the regular pshat, the plain meaning, but then there's also the story, <clears throat> the hidden story. And what is amazing in the, this story is that the psukim, all the verses, the psukim, that we can read on one story can also be applied to the hidden story. So it's remarkable that the Torah can use the exact same psukim, verses, for two narratives. Uh, there's a narrative which is the upper story, the revealed story, and then the, the story, the hidden story, which is the real story which goes on. And I began th- those ideas a while back that indicate that the story of Yaakov and Esau is not merely about two, br- two brothers uh, and one went his own way and the other went uh, to his way and so on and the repercussions and so on. Uh, but what it really is is a divergence of the whole Tikkun process and that's very important. And that's the real hidden story is that divergence where, you know, two different brothers who had two different missions in terms of the process of Tikkun. Each one went his own way. And what did the Rosham do to make up for that? As we will see. So this where the story is a fundamental understanding of the Hashkafa. <coughs> of the Tikkun process. Now, we begin, we, we saw from last week, and I proved to you that this is the real hidden story. Uh, I brought down Rashi, uh, and I, of course I read the Ramchal, and I even mentioned the, what the Medrash says. Um, so there's no question. Also, uh, which is interesting, there's a, uh, 
Roshiva, who was Nifta many years ago. His name is Gedal Yeshur, Rav Gedal Yeshur. And he wrote a sefer, which is uh, is uh, sort of, uh, uh, in many ways, a profound uh, study of the Hashkafa of Chumash. And in Parshas told us, he also brings down the whole story of Yaakov and Esav. He mentions the whole concept that both of them were others and so on. But that is the hidden story, that Esav is an of. You know, and um, then that's the story of an of that failed to pursue his mission, failed to actually achieve uh, what he should have achieved and what it could have uh, meant <coughs> in the history of Christ's Israel. That's a very important idea because what the Bansham did, history changed in a radical way as a result of this story, which we will see. In any case, we see that <clears throat> both of them were very great. And just to get an idea uh, of the greatness of, not Yaakov, obviously, but Esav, because there's Vayigdiluha Na'orim, and the youths grew up. The two Na'orim, the two young, uh, you know, lads, grew up. And Rashi comments that it says, Vayigdiluha Na'orim, it uses one verb uh, to describe the growth of both of these people. So Rashi says the reason why he does that, the Torah does that, <laughs> is to show that they were equal. But it's interesting, equal in what way? That you could not tell them apart. We know they were twins. But many times, you know, even twins, they can be two different types of people, you see. But Yaakov and Esav, before 13 years old, were equal. Means you could not tell the difference between Yaakov and Esav as they were growing up. Now, when you think about that, that's absolutely amazing. Why? We can assume that Yaakov Avinu, when he was a kid, was a child prodigy. Obviously, he must have been very bright. He must have been a tremendous, uh, here they would say, a tremendous Eloi. Eloi means a brilliant, precocious child. Obviously, that's what, that, that's what he must have been, uh, certainly to become what he became ultimately, which is one of the great, which is actually the greatest of, that's what the Torah, the uh, Chazal say, Bechira of us. He was the greatest of the of us. So we can imagine uh, that as he grew up, you know, let's say he was nine years old, ten years old, eleven years old. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine Yaakov as a kid, but he obviously was a kid. He grew up. Uh, so we can imagine that this child was not an ordinary child. This child was a brilliant, precocious uh, genius, if you want to look at it that way. Now, wait a minute. If that's what he was, and the Torah compares them with the same verb, and that means that we're equal, that means Esau also must have been brilliant. Because you couldn't tell them apart. You see, so it comes out that Esav, when he was nine years old, or twelve years old, or whatever, had the same brilliant 
extraordinary personality as his brother Yaakov. So we all might be see what this ace of was, you see. And therefore we see that from Vayigdulahana Oram. Uh, so Esav clearly, just like Yaakov, was no ordinary person. Now why were they so extraordinary? Because each one had a major aspect of Tikkun to do. Like I said last time, the Tikkun of Esav was to fight the Satan, to fight the drives that he had to do evil and to subdue the Satan, you see, and to remain righteous. And we know what the, the, the mission of Yaakov was, to bring down holiness by, uh, you know, by uh, becoming completely involved in learning Torah, whatever Torah existed at that time, and so on. So clearly they both had prodigious abilities. So can imagine how great Esau is. You can't even tell the difference between him and Yaakov. So that's an important uh, idea, who Esau was for 13 years of his life. Now the problem was, is one that when Esau turned 13, which we know is the age of Bar Mitzvah and so on, he became evil. Now the third doesn't describe, you know, how he became evil and so on, you know. But at 13 years old, he already became evil. But it was not apparent. Apparently, he concealed the evil part of his nature from everybody. So nobody really knew that. <coughs> at 15, <coughs> at 15 years old is when he became evil uh, outright. That's when people saw who he really was. He just became a very evil person. And when I mean evil, I mean evil. You know, he committed murder when he was 15 years old. Uh, he committed murder. He killed Nimrod. And he took his coat, you know, and so on. Uh, and uh, he already, imagine committing murder at 15 years old. And not only that, Esau had tremendous uh, drives, uh, what today they'd call the uh, business drives. He was tremendously attracted to other men's wives, and he would seduce them. And this this guy's just he, he just uh, between thirteen and fifteen. That's what he did. He committed all those averas. It was just astounding how a person can take all those gifts that God gave him and completely mahapech turn it around to do evil. You see. So at 13, he became evil, but it wasn't open, revealed, exposed until he was 15 years old. And we will see what the profound implications of that was, you see. Now, there are many people that ask and say, wait a minute. Besides, this story is an extraordinary story, you know, of a child prodigy becoming evil. But what they point out is this. <clears throat> Wait a minute. It says that in the beginning, you know, Rivka had this tremendous pain when she was carrying Yaakov and Esav. And the Chazal bring out that the embryos 
used to fight. Now, putting away, what does that mean? But it says that if she would pass some type of holy place, then Yaakov would try to break out. And if she would pass some type of Avodah then Esav would try to break out. So what do we see? This leaves us with a tremendous question. You know, if, if Esav already was drawn to Avodah to idol worship, when he wasn't even born yet, so then the question is, where is this man's free will? I mean, he's finished. Right? Imagine, he's not even born, and he has this unbelievable Yetzirah, right? So then what do you want from the guy? The guy obviously was condemned, even before birth, to be evil. So we're not talking about here, we're not talking here about a person that has free will, you see? Uh, so even if he does become evil, what do you want from the guy? He was doomed to be evil. That's what a lot of people ask. In other words, where is Esau's free will? You don't find that by Yaakov, and even Yaakov. You know, where was his free will? Because as an embryo, he was attracted to Kedusha. You know? So where is his free will? In any case, that's a very powerful question. And not only that, why should it be that way? <laughs> you see, why would God do that to a person? And make imagine having a Yetzirah even before you're born? Very powerful question. But do you know what the answer is? Esau was driven to worship idols, to do evil. But that doesn't mean he had to do it. What God did is because he had to destroy the Sultan, because he was the root of holiness, and he was connected to the root of evil, which is the Sultan. And that's why the Sultan was his angel. Why? Because in order for Esau to do the job of destroying the Sultan, which is the root of evil, he had to be connected to the Sultan himself. Therefore, whenever he would do holy acts, that would minimize the existence of the Sultan. Therefore, when it says that when they passed Avayd Zara, a place of idol worship, Ace would try to go out and become part of that, That's, that wasn't his choice. That was his what's called tendency. That was his inclination because he was connected to evil. In other words, before birth already, his task, his mission was chosen, you see. But that doesn't mean he was evil, you see. If he wanted to, he certainly had the ability to say no. But what, what the Torah tells us is we already can see what his mission was. And his mission was, of course, to destroy evil. Therefore, he had to be given this unbelievable propensity or proclivity or inclination to do evil. That's all it means. He had free will, you see. And even Yaakov Avinu doesn't mean he didn't have a Yetzirah. Of course he did. <laughs> but his tendency already <clears throat> was to seek, try to do good, or try to, uh, you know, do righteous and holy acts and so on. But he still had a Yetzirah. Now, 
you may say, wait a minute, where do we see this? You know, the guy's evil before being born. So how do you know he could have overcome the Eitzahara? How do we know that? You see. Now remember, a person is born with a personality. In this case, it's not even a personality. He's born with what's called a temperament. Children are not born with personalities. A personality is the pattern of behavior uh, that is adapted by a person, uh, by a uh, infant, <coughs> in response to the needs and the drives and the opportunities of living. So he develops a personality. A personality is learned. A temperament, however, is not learned. It is what every person is born with. And you could see that in infants. You know, some infants are very sensitive to noise, and others will just lie there no matter what happens. That's called temperament. And temperament is inborn. <laughs> it is not learned or developed. So the Torah is really telling you that they fought inside Rivka, that this is the temperament of Yaakov and Esau uh, to prepare the way for their ultimate mission. Now, I ask the question, wait a minute, how do we know that Esau could have beaten the Yitzhahara? certainly doesn't look that way. And I will show you proof. <clears throat> what is the most difficult thing for an evil person to resist? You know what that is? It's interesting. People who do evil you know, who have tremendous drives to be really bad, you know, <laughs> generally are egomaniacs, or rather egocentric, tremendous baligaiva, and they're only interested in themselves. Therefore, the most difficult thing for them is to submit to authority, <laughs> because that's exactly opposite than the characteristic that they have. Their characteristic, you see, is complete absorption in self, ego. Whether you want to call that egocentric, an egomaniac, whatever. They are absorbed in themselves, and they resist listening to any type of authority. That should be obvious. Therefore, it would, it would seem that the most difficult thing... <coughs> <clears throat> that the most difficult thing for a person, right, would be to resist, or for an evil person, would be to resist authority. Because that's exactly opposite than what his nature says, that, hey, do every old thing for yourself. Who cares about anybody else? You see. But when you find Esau, you see, you find that in all generations... He was the greatest individual ever known in terms of the mitzvah of Kibbutz over Aim. In fact, the Gemara says, Rabban Shem Ben Gamliel said the following, I, he referred to himself, I was the greatest person in the mitzvah of Kibbutz over Aim in my generation. This is what Rabban Shem Ben Gamliel says. However, I find that my uncle, Esav, was greater than me. This is what Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel says. Imagine that. That Esau's Kibbutz of Aim, 
Esau's honoring his father and mother was the greatest, basically, of all time. That's what it says. So wait a minute. That's strange. How in the world did Esau do that? And by the way, he gives an illustration. He says that every time Esau would visit his father, or he would go to speak to his father, he would change his garments into big day yomtuf, <clears throat> into garments uh, that one wears when there's a holiday, just to go in to speak to his father, just to do that. He would change his garments. That's how unbelievably respectful he was of his father. Now, not only is it strange, actually extraordinary, that Esau had this degree of observance of kibbutz of aim, honoring your father and mother. But what is extraordinary is who he was. He's an incredibly evil person, right, that would go out and seduce other men's wives, or he would murder people. I mean, can we imagine this is a kid, a teenager doing this stuff? Uh, so we would think that the most difficult thing for him to observe mitzvah would be to submit to the authority of a parent. Yet we find that not only did he submit to this difficult mitzvah that would be contrary to his personality, <coughs> but, <coughs> but that he was the greatest man to observe this mitzvah of almost of all time. How did he do it? How does a guy who has such evil, who is such a narcissist, such an egomaniac, how in the world does he submit completely to the authority of his father? And what does that show you? That shows you this, that if Esau wanted to do it, he could have done it. That he had control. He had free will over his evil. So therefore, in the area of submitting to authority, keep it over aim, he decided that he's going to go along with it to extraordinary heights. But in other areas, he remained evil. So this shows you how great he was and how, what he could have done if he wanted to become, you know, righteous. And like I mentioned, uh, whatever, that there is a, what's called a Rishain, who lived about 700 years ago, the Pa'aneach Rozo, that he says that had Esau done his job, which means to subdue evil and remain righteous, he would have been twice as great as Yaakov Avinu. Because when you think about it, he had a much more difficult job. You know, to have that type of Yetzirah, where even before you're born, you're running to do Oivet Avadzara, you're running to worship idols. Could you imagine what kind of Yetzirah that is? His Yetzirah wasn't just a, uh, what do you call it, a uh, appointee of the Sutton. His Yetzirah was the Sutton. You know, the king of all evil, that was his Yetzirah. Could you believe what that means? Yet, when he chose to do good, keep it over aim, he was the greatest of all time. There you are. This shows you, right, who he really was, Esau, and what his capacity was. And that's why the Paneach Rosa says that had he done good, 
Had he not done evil, he would have been twice as great as Yaakov Avino. We don't even we, we can't we can't even begin to understand uh, the tzitkus, the righteousness, the holiness of Yaakov Avino. Could you imagine somebody twice as great as Yaakov? No, we can't. In any case, this is what we see, and that is the answer uh, to the question: Where is this man's free will? That is the answer. In any case, what do we see so far? That Esav, until 13, you could not tell the difference between him and Yaakov Avinu. Yet he decided, for whatever reason, that he has a choice, that he decided to do evil, you know, and just throw his hat into the ring with the Yitzhahara, which is exactly what he did. Okay. So the Chumash continues with this, you see, and then it says she goes to, you know, the house of Shembeeva to find out a prophecy, what's happening. So they tell her a prophecy, very interesting prophecy. And this spells out the history in many ways of the entire world, especially when it comes to the, the whole Tikkun uh, process and how it even spills today, you know. So... It says that what? That she went to the um, the house of Shemve'eva, house of Shemve'eva right? <clears throat> and they said that there are two peoples in, in, in inside of you, right? And they will be great nations. So that's the first prophecy, right? Shnei goyim <clears throat> and Rashi comments that this was fulfilled with Rebbe, Rabino HaKodesh, and with Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. That's how it was fulfilled. And they were, we're talking about Rome and Jews, Israel. Uh, so they, there are two great nations that will descend from them. Why are they great? Not only because of their wealth and their power, but also because these are the only real nations that are involved in the Tikkun process, you see. And then the prophecy continues. <coughs> the prophecy continues, you see, that they are going to be separated, which means that basically they're going to have two different jobs. You know, even though they're going to be, you know, uh, uh, both great nations, they're going to be separate, right? But then... Separate in what way? Separate in a, in a good way? Each one has his own job? No. One nation will prevail over the other nation. What does that mean? That means one nation will be greater than the other. In other words, we are looking at struggle. We're not looking here about two different nations, each one with their own gifts, and each one with their own promise. No, we are looking at tremendous amount of conflict struggle between them, which is a very important idea. But what will happen in the end <clears throat> is the older will serve the younger, you see. Now, this concept of the older will serve the younger is a very profound idea. In other words, the older, who obviously was Esau, will serve the younger, which is Yaakov. That means this is the ultimate prophecy. Uh, that even though the older will be in struggle or conflict with the younger, in the end, 
his service assists the younger. Uh, so really, even the old one who has opposed, let's say, Yaakov, <coughs> you see, in the end, they're really doing, he's really doing, the older is really doing the job that he was given to do, except it's going to be in a different form. That's what they're saying. Very important that the older must serve the younger, you see. And even though the older will struggle and be different, which means he will be evil, he will serve the younger, you see. If the older is still doing his job as Tikkun, very important concept. Now, what is this supposed to mean? Well, we know Asa became evil, and Yaakov, of course, remained righteous. What does it mean to serve the younger? Because the job of the older, in the end, uh, right, is to promote God, subdue evil and promote God, you see. And that is critical. You must destroy evil in order for the good to flourish. That's why the older will ultimately serve the younger. So that's number one. Number two, that the older one will serve the younger. How? Because he will persecute the younger. And the Medrash here on this post says that when you read the word Rav Ya'avoid Tso'ir, the older will serve the younger, <coughs> it could be read because there's no punctuation in the Torah. It could be read as Rav Ya'avoid Tso'ir, the older will serve the younger. Or it could be read Rav, right? The older, Ya'avoid, not Ya'avoid, the Yaved will persecute the younger, you see. And that automatically, the Medrash, Kontan Medrash, reveals what's going to happen, is that the older will persecute the younger. In other words, what that means is that if the younger sins and he needs punishment, right, as a kapora, as an atonement, then the one who will be the major person to carry that out is the older, is Esau. And that automatically helps the younger by providing the atonement, you see. So in the end, the older does serve the younger by being the major agent of punishment for the younger. Very important idea. But there's something else which is very important. Now we know ultimately is the old one is Esau. And from him came Rome, Esau as we know from the Torah, became Edom, and Edom becomes Rome. Now, Rome, therefore, will serve the younger by destroying the Bishamidus, which is a tremendous kapora that the Jewish people needed at that time for all the sinaschinam, the hatred that they had for one another. But in any case, the older does serve the younger, by persecutions and tremendous amount of um, punishments that the Romans did to the Jewish people. But there's something else that he will serve the younger. Uh, how? Because the older, according to the Rambam, says that the Roman people, or rather, Rome became a religion. Uh, you see? Because Asaph really was supposed to be the last what's called Golas, 
exile. But what God did is interesting. Esau was supposed to be, or Rome, was supposed to be the last exile. But the problem is, that would have lasted 2,000 years from the time Rome became an empire, so to speak, until the end of time. But God did not want Esau in the form of Rome to dominate and persecute the Jews for thousands of years. Because why? Because the Jews would be exiled to many, many different places. And that would mean that Rome would have to rule the world all over the world uh, for 2,000 years. So what God did is he changed Rome or the, or the nation from Esau. He changed them into a religion. <laughs> and that religion is called Christianity. So therefore, Esau today is Christianity, which is, when you think about it, an amazing idea. And Christianity, of course, has persecuted the Jews for thousands of years, you see. But there's something else that Christianity does on a positive side. And the Rambam, Maimonides, says that Christianity itself has promoted certain very important Jewish ideas which paganism did not have. Christianity believes in a Messiah, whatever. They also believe that there will be an end, and in the end, righteousness will, uh, will happen, and so on. And also, basically, that there's only one God. In other words, Christianity has gone all over the world to promote this, and that is part of the tikkun. So therefore, Esau, instead of Yaakov Avino, it wasn't the children of Yaakov who are the Jews. They did not promote God the way Esau does through Christianity, you see. And Christianity throughout the thousands of years has sent missionaries all over the world. <clears throat> and, and the reason why Christianity has 2.5 billion people, it's one third of the human race, is because that was the job of Esau, you see. So that's also how Esau has served the younger, either through persecutions or through actually promoting the Torah, you know. And the reason why the Torah is so well known among the nations of the world, and they call it the Old Testament, which of course is nonsense, the reason why they promote, they, is known because they promoted the Torah, uh, you know, and so on. Of course, it's been to justify their religion, but be that as it may, it promoted the Torah, the ideas of Torah, throughout the world. So in a very interesting sense, the Christianity, which comes from Rome, that's the religion of Rome, which comes from Edom, which comes from Esau, <clears throat> actually promoted the whole concept of the Torah, which is amazing when you think about that. So that's also what that prophecy said. So look what we have in this prophecy, you see, that the older will serve the younger, either through the form of persecutions or through the form of actually promoting Torah values throughout the world through Christianity uh, and so on. And the Ramam says this, you see. In any case, so that is very important. But there's a third idea in terms of what they will do. That since the older will serve the younger, then eventually 
the older will serve the younger directly, not indirectly, which is what I've said until now. That means there's a concept called the toiv shebeisov. That's right. That in the end of time, Esau will come back and be righteous. Correct. That they are not doomed to be evil all their days. <clears throat> and this I will talk about later why they deserve this. But that's what it means that the older will serve the younger literally. Not merely through punishment or promoting the Torah throughout the world, but also that Asa will assist Yaakov Avino and his descendants, the Jewish people, to actually do the Tikkun. So that's a prophecy that must be. And this tells us that in the end of time, Asa is coming back as a righteous nation. And I have mentioned previously many times, that is the concept of Donald Trump who uh, basically is Esav, it's called the Tev Shebe Esav, doing Tshuva. That's a very important concept that we see. That's what he's done. He recognized Israel, right? He's recognized the Golan, recognized Yerushalayim. He's actually made peace between Israel and the Arabs. And unfortunately, which I gave a whole shir about, he was stopped Right, because of the tremendous prosecutions in heaven against Jews uh, and so on, if you want to listen to that shear and so on. But in any case, he will be coming back. And he, once he comes back, then he will really assist the Jews to do the tikkun itself. In any case, this is all from the prophecy that the older will serve the younger. Very important idea and so on. In any case. So, <laughs> we now have the basis of the Tikkun process between Yaakov and Esau. Now, Yitzchak obviously loved Esau. Why did Yitzchak love Esau? Because the Zohar says that a, you know, that somebody loves somebody that's in his mission, same mission. Well, the mission of Yitzchak, if you think about it, was that he was from the left side, Gvura. And that side was to subdue the Sultan and remain totally righteous. Well, that's exactly what Esau did. The difference was Yitzchak subdued the evil within himself. He didn't go out like Avram Avino, you see. He just worked on himself. He worked on his Midas, you see, to completely eradicate the sudden or the evil drives or the tempting drives within himself. He didn't go outside. Was Asa was an Ishadah. He went outside to subdue evil. You see. So therefore, really, when you think about it, they were in the same camp. They were in the same mission. You see. So that's the basic reason why Yitzchak loved Asa. <laughs> you see. The problem, of course, is that uh, Esav, of course, became a tremendous Russia. And as a Russia, what happened was, of course, is that at 15 years old, he went public. Then everybody saw what he was. And this brings us to a very strange story. 
That is at 15 years old, because that's when this story happened. In the Chumash, it says that Esau came home starving. And the Medrash says that he had committed five, five heinous deeds on that day. He murdered Nimrod, whatever, a whole bunch of terrible things that he did on that day. And he came home, right? And he was wiped. He was tired, or yef, right? And he was starving. Now, the Medrash also tells us that uh, this was the day that Avraham Avinu died. And therefore, Yitzchak was sitting shiva. And Yaakov was making a lentil, whatever, bowl of lentils or whatever, that he was going to give his father, Yitzchak, you see. So Esau comes home after committing those deeds, terrible, evil deeds, and he's starving, and he says to Yaakov, please, let me have some of those, uh, that that dish that you are preparing for Yitzchak. So so, uh, Yaakov, what would you expect? Look, your brother comes home, he's starving. Of course, you give him the dish, uh, that you're making. Instead, Yaakov comes up with a, uh, a sale. He says, okay, I'll give you this, you know, on condition that you give me your birthright. Now, the birthright was more than just being born first. The birthright made or, or uh, designated whoever was the firstborn son. He was the priest of the family, <laughs> not the clan. <clears throat> but the priest of the family, he was sort of like in charge of all the spirituality of the family. It was a tremendous uh, sort of like a commission that he was supposed to do. So Yaakov agreed to give it to Esau on condition that Esau sell him the birthright. For what? For a pot of lentils? Now people look at this and say, what is this? How does Yaakov do that to a brother? The guy comes home, he's wiped, he needs food. So what are you trying to do? Make a profit on him? Why do you do that? That's what people say. But again, that's because they do not know the real narrative. Yaakov faced a tremendous problem. What was that problem? Esau. Esau, on that day, came home and had committed five terrible deeds. One of them, which was the murder, Nimrod, in any case. And Yaakov said, wait a minute. He is Jewish because his mother and father are Jewish. But what that also means is that Esau is an of. Do you have any idea the power of somebody who has the neshama, the soul of an of? Tremendous spiritual power. Tremendous spiritual uh, uh, prayers. You know, he can, when he does a mitzvah, he brings a tremendous tikkun to the world. And if he does a sin, that is a tremendous kilko, damage to the world. Because the greater the neshama, the greater is the effect of the mitzvah, and the greater is the damage of an avera. Because they have in, in, incredible souls that are connected to so many different places in creation. 
The problem is that Esav, who's a Russia, has the power of Tikkun, or, which is rectification, or the power of Kilko, damage, you see. So Yaakov Avinu said, this is insane. Here's a guy who has the neshama of an of, a patriarch, that has the power to destroy the world. Because if an of sins, that's a tremendous kilko, damage. So the question is, I realize, I realize what? So Yaakov indicates in two words why he did this. And this, again, is part of the hidden story. Because Yaakov Avinu said, Michro, sell me, Kayoim, as this day, as Bechiros Choli. Sell me your firstborn, right? That privilege you have, right? Sell it to me this day. And now we can ask, wait a minute, Yaakov just should have said, sell me your birthright. What do you mean, sell me Michro Kayoim? Sell me as this day your birthright. Because what Yaakov was saying is this day I have seen the unbelievable power of what you can do, what your evil does in terms of damaging creation. We see it today. How? Because like I said, Aroma Vino, God promised him that you will be buried by Savior you will, be, uh, talk, uh, you, you, will, you will die in a, in a restful, in a peaceful way, <coughs> which means that I will not let you see any of the evil of Esau. Therefore, Avraham Avinu was supposed to be 180. Instead, he died at 175. That means he died five years earlier, Right? Because Yitzchak lived to 180. So it comes out Avraham Avinu died at 175. Five years earlier than he should have died. Yeah, but why? The reason why he died five years earlier is because Avram should not see the evil of Esav. Because when Avram Avinu was 175, Esav became 15. And when he became 15, he became completely exposed to his evil. And that would have caused unbelievable amount of stress to Avraham Avinu. So God said, no, I promised him that he will die in a peaceful manner, right? Without agitation, right? So God took him five years before his time. Now, why is this a damage? Do you have any idea what it means for an of a patriarch to die five years before his time, every day that an of, somebody at the soul of a patriarch, lives and does mitzvahs, brings tremendous amount of rectification to the world. So when Avraham Avinu died five years, that's five years worth of rectification. Right? It's unbelievable. And who caused it? Esav. Because he was 15 when he turned 175, Avraham, Right? <coughs> and therefore, God did not want Avram Avinu to see this. So he took Avram Avinu five years before he should have died. Should have lived 180, you see. And who's responsible for this? The evil of Esau. 
And that is the kilkel of Esau. So Yaakov Avinu says, Michro tell me, Kayoim, as this day, because this day we see the consequences of your evil, that you've caused the death of Avram Avinu before his time. Could you imagine what kind of damage that is to the creation itself? Because that's what Yaakov Avinu, or rather, that's what Avram Avinu could have done. So therefore, Yaakov realized, I must take away his ability to do tikkun, certainly as a firstborn. That's why he wanted to get it by a pot of beans or lentils or whatever, you see. Now it makes sense. Because if you leave this guy, Esau, with the ability to do tikkun, with the soul of an of, could you imagine the damage that it will do to creation? It could wipe out creation. He killed Avram Avinu. Who knows what he could do with this ability to do kilkul damage instead of tikkun. That is why Yaakov knew that he has to take away or get, no matter what path, he's got to get the firstborn of, of uh, Esau. So he offered him a pot of beans. Now it just shows you how little worth the concept of a birthright was to Esau. And Esau said, no problem, no problem. You can keep it. And they made it sale. Esau sold him his birthright, which basically means that he sold him his ability to do tikkun, and therefore if he cannot do tikkun, he can't do kilko either. So what we see change, and that's why the Torah brings the story, is we see that the tikkun ability of Esau <coughs> to do tikkun as an of, as a patriarch, and the ability to do, of Esau to do kilkul damage, as an of, was terminated. That's what this story is really all about, you see. And therefore it makes perfect sense why Yaakovino, the brother of Esau, had to get Esau to sell him, because he had to terminate Esau's ability to do tikkun and kilkul as a patriarch. But we don't understand this. We don't understand the damage. We don't understand the incredible power of a, a guy who has an neshama, of a patriarch. We don't. And what type of tikkun they could do uh, with righteousness and what kind of damage they can do, we don't understand this. But Yaakov Avinu, at 15, knew what the story was. You see, so it's amazing when you think about it, that when you know the hidden story, not the revealed story, then all these questions basically get answered, which is really a very important idea, that the whole Chumash really is really one long hidden story. And I'm just talking about the story of Yaakov and Esau, of how many things come out of this, how much beautiful understandings, how many questions are answered once you understand the hidden story itself. So where are we up to in this story? That Esau has lost his what's called avahus, his patriarchy. He cannot do tikkun, and he cannot do kilko. So the world is safe so far. This will go on well until... The next significant story, 
which of course is um, Yaakov Avinu stealing the blessings from Yitzchak, which I will talk about next time. But in any case, this incident between Yaakov and Esav is critical for the whole concept of Tikkun, the ultimate mission of each Jew, is you're either on Esav's Kfiyasura, or you are Yoshiva Holom, which is what I mentioned. And ultimately, that leads into Mashiach bin Yosef, who subdues evil, destroys it, and actually, and uh, Mashiach bin David, uh, he actually destroys the evil and so on. <laughs> ultimately, in the end of time, this is uh, so fair, we, we, uh, you know, what, this, what the story really reveals. Any questions so far? So if Esav's Tikkun process what? if if Tikkun process was taken away from him and sold to Yaakov, then how come we still need the Tov Shiba Esav to um fulfill the, the last point? Good question. The truth is we need that process, right? It was taken away from Esau, but it had to be replaced. How was it going to be replaced? That necessitated a whole chain of events, which we, I will talk about. You see, it had to be replaced. So merely to take away that from Esau is insufficient. All you've done is prevent damage to creation itself. But you have not replaced it you need somebody to fulfill Asa's job, you see, and to rectify creation in terms of evil. And as we will see, somebody had to take it over, you see, because you still need that task. When Asa does truth in the end, right, he doesn't take that job back again. He remains as an assist. But he never comes back as an of, but he does as an assist against the nations of the world and tries to help the Jews uh, combat and destroy evil, you see. Yeah? So by Yaakov buying his birthright and he didn't buy the tikkun process of a sad job, like he didn't he didn't take over the fourth Av's job? No. Not yet. No. That's later on. So eventually, Yaakov does be, he ends up being the third and fourth Av, I mean, in, in the Tikkun process. Correct. Eventually, and that's the story which we will get to, that is the real story of when Yaakov stole the blessings from Esau, that Yitzchak gave him the blessings. That's the story where he actually takes over, as I will show you. It's a beautiful understanding of what is going on, but the amazing thing is that these themes are hidden because they talk about Yaakov and Esau as spiritual people that deal with the spiritual necessities of the, of the uh, worlds, you see. It's not merely two brothers arguing with each other. Heaven stands on 
the struggle between these two people and the consequences of their act, Shemayim, heaven, stands on this. That's the hidden story, which I am showing you, and that I actually make the whole story of the Chumash really intelligible, as I've shown you. Where was the free will of Esau? What was this that uh, Yaakov sold for what? For a pot of beans? Is the way you treat your brother? You now begin to understand an entirely different scenario, you see, that really happens. Actually, that's why to learn Chumash this way is beautiful. It is. So, so now I have a question. Okay. We know that Yitzhak <laughs> was blind, and that's why he didn't. they say that he couldn't really tell if Esau was really bad or not. But now that we're in a much deeper sense of what the, we're not on the surface of what the Torah is, I mean, Yitzchak was very spiritual. He was prophetic. And he, how come he couldn't see through Esau's, uh, you know, facade, his act? How come he couldn't? And, and Rivka saw it in a minute. Like, why Yitzchak, who was an Av, who knows everything, like, you know what I mean? He knows the process of the tikkunim. He knows everything. He couldn't sense that Esav couldn't fulfill that? Well, good question. Why? They say Abraham too. Abraham was alive. Why didn't he see it? And the answer is, we think that a Novi knows everything. He doesn't. A Novi <coughs> only knows what God tells him in the Nevoah through prophecy. If God does not want a Novi to know, he will not tell him. You see? Even though, and even, and what's interesting is Yitzchak knew that Yosef was alive. He knew that the brothers kidnapped him. He knew that. Hey, but he did not tell you. And he, could you imagine how much pain he would have saved Yaakov Avinu if Yaakov would have known? So the question is, okay, now Yitzhak knew, why didn't he tell Yaakov? And the answer is, because he reasoned. Wait a minute. Yaakov is a Novi. Why doesn't he know through prophecy? So he said, wait a minute. Obviously, God is not telling him. There's a reason for that. If God felt the need to tell Yaakov, <coughs> right, then he would have told him. Clearly then, since he didn't tell him, that means God does not want Yaakov to know, and Yaakov has to go through the suffering, of which we can talk about later. Therefore, Yitzchak did not tell Yaakov. Could you imagine a father not telling his son about his grandson, and therefore allowing his son to suffer? Look, they lived on a whole different plane of existence. To them, everything was spiritual. To them, everything was tikkun. Everything. They looked at this world completely through these spiritual times. There's a newspaper that they read. It's called the Spiritual Times. You see, that's how they understand everything. Through the process of, of what happens in heaven. How do we get the tikkun to progress? You see, how do we deal with evil? You see, in this case, Yitzchak did not know. God did not tell him. He didn't tell him who Esau was. Now, you may ask, wait a minute. Even if Yitzchak didn't know because God did not, did not want to tell him to prophecy, okay, 
as we will see why. Right? But how come Yitzchak couldn't figure it out? I mean, a man's an intelligent man, right? Why couldn't he figure it out? And the answer is because Yitzchak knew that whoever is going to have the agency of dealing with the Sultan to destroy the Sultan, of course he's going to make mistakes. How could you not? Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. So if the Yetzirah is connected to Esav, in order for Esav to destroy the Sultan, so of course Esav is going to slip up every once in a while. So the fact that Esav does sins is par for the course. It's expected. But it does not invalidate <clears throat> the mission of Esav. This was the problem, you see. Yitzhak did not realize how evil Esav became. And part of the reason for that <coughs> is because of Kibbutz. Because Esav knew that this disturbed Yitzhak, and he loved Yitzhak. See? So even though he was evil, tremendously evil, <coughs> why would he want to display that evil in front of his father, right? And cause him tremendous pain. So you combine that. Yitzhak did not know through prophecy, because God obviously did not want him to know, as we will see. Not only that, even it was difficult for Yitzhak to see the complete evil of Esav, because Esav always hid it from Yitzhak, so as not to disturb the tranquility of Yitzhak. So therefore he knew that Esav sinned. We see that from the Torah. <coughs> you see? He knew that. We see that from the Torah when he married, you know, whatever, people that were against <coughs> uh, um, Yitzchok's uh, wishes. But he did not know the extent of the enormous deterioration, corruption of the Nisham of Esau. And that's why he made a mistake. You see? And like I said before, because Esav also was in the same area, theme, in the Tikkun process as Yitzchak himself. So that also probably had an ability to blind Yitzchak in terms of the depths of evil that Esav had fell into, you see. But what's important is that a Novi does not know everything. Only what God tells him. And obviously, God did not tell him. See? So I have a, a question. <clears throat> so all the Avs were put... First, I have two questions. One, would Esav be anything in the, in the Sefirah? Which one would he be? Who, Esav? Yeah. I mentioned last time he was the left side of Tferis. Oh, oh, so he shared to ferret with Yaakov, and then eventually Yaakov took it over. Right, okay. yeah, that's it. Okay, two. Um, does the Imahot have anything, any spot in the in the Sefirot? Yes. Do you know of any? Yes. Well, so they are together know. with their husbands. Avraham Avinu, you know, he did the Gerim, and she did the women. Isora is together with Avram. It's a team approach, you see. <coughs> but uh, they are described in terms of 
the, uh, the patriarch himself, you see, because he's the Zohar, was the uh, aim, the Imos, is the Nekeva, but uh, basically it's the same sphere. <laughs> so, so Rachel and Leah, did, did one have one side of the Teferi and the other had the other? Yes, correct. That's when we come to the amazing story of Rachel and Leah, who they really were. And they also were split. That's why, as I will elaborate on later, Leah really was supposed to marry Esau, and Rachel was supposed to marry Yaakov. That was their real partners, you right. see. But there was an incredible switch, which I will talk about later on. There was an incredible switch. Fascinating. I think you gave, you told us a little bit, uh, you touched upon that last year with us. You told Maybe, us I don't remember. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah it was, Maybe. It was a great, yeah, great But now I'm unfolding the whole story in a chronological way, you know, so it just shows you by understanding the hidden story, how many questions are answered. You see. Uh, yeah, it's amazing when you think about it. 